Henny, 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 Lotte. Okay. Gold, frankincense, mare, and a copy of Condor Man on Blu-ray. It's time to kick the snow from your boots, wipe those feet, then come and join your too far from wise men. Me for Walsh. A medium haul as we invite you to pour a sherry, pull up a mince pie, and forget all about crass commercial exploitation and cheap poorly made rubbish as we unwrap Midnight Video's Christmas special. With bells on. Greetings. Yeah, I'm the one. To I, I, all I of our wonderful listeners out there. Oh, right, yeah. I, th- I, thought, you, I thought it was directed at me. You? <laughs> um, you must be especially pleased to be joining me by this big roaring fire we have here. Oh, it's toasty hot after my cold day. Well, I was going to say, you've been stuck out there. I've been working like a navvy. <laughs> Breaking the cold soil with your shovel. Yeah, but I've got my long johns on. I work, uh, My hood's always up, and... Yep. Yeah, I've been making very special seasonal sandwiches to keep my uh, to keep those embers in my heart going. Go on, give me an example of these menus. Turkey slices, Bernard Matthews. Thank you, Mr. Bernard. R.I.P. R.I.P. Yeah. Um, a rocket salad, yeah, a little bit continental. Mm-hmm. Cranberry sauce. You were telling me earlier you were having cranberry and turkey pasties. I had one of those as well. Yeah, I'm just going all out with, festive with food too here. Mu- too much onion. <laughs> yeah. But now... The two of us are sitting here very excitedly wrapping streaky bacon around our chipolatas. <laughs> Phil's got his fist in the back of a plump bird. <laughs> and it's Christmas. We're going to be doing something a little bit oh, different. Oh, right, yes. Yeah, yes. It's Christmas. Yeah, I forgot about that bit. Absolutely. There was a reason for all this. Well, yes, because we're going to be doing something a bit different tonight. You, you may have noticed, if you were paying attention, that we didn't tell you what films we're going to review because we don't know. We've no idea. We we had a couple of plans for what to do this time, and Phil, being the old bar humbug that he is, scotched my initial plan of reviewing some uh, peculiar Christmas films, including Laurel and Hardy in Babes in Thailand. In, in Thailand, <laughs> Babes in Thailand would have been a <laughs> if only Babes in Thailand, um, and the Mexican Puss in Boots, the which Mexican Pussy Boots, <laughs> which. I think by the time this, um, by the time you're listening to this, I may have posted up on our Facebook page. But no, tonight, three not terribly lucky listeners have sent us some special presents, which we have under our tree. Some Christmas crackers as well, haven't they? So yes, tonight, in the spirit of Christmas, the listeners are going to be selecting the films for us tonight. So. This is great. Yeah. This film. is exciting. I feel, I feel like a 10-year-old again, you know, when you open, <laughs> you rip it open and there's a huge wave of disappointment. Oh, now, come on. <laughs> now, I'm sure the listeners have uh, picked some real I guess you, merry gentlemen yes. and ladies. Okay, so our first cracker from beneath the tree is from Marie Hepworth. Are you ready to uh, get this cracker open? Oh, I'm ready as I'll ever be. Hi, Jim. Hi, Phil. It's Marie here with my Christmas cracker. I've chosen The Great Silence because um, it's my favourite spaghetti western film starring Klaus Kinski and Jean-Louis Trittignon um, directed by Sergio Corbucci. It has a really great Morricone score um, 
got a nice snowy setting, which is kind of festive, but it's really grim and depressing. Um, anyway, I hope you enjoy it and have a happy Christmas. This one's faster than the devil. For all I know, he is the devil. Wow, thanks, Marie. So, we're having a little Kinski Christmas. I like that. Yeah. I like that. I'd, I'd like... Um... I'd like to see Kinski, or I'd like to have seen Kinski as a, a Father Christmas character. Not Schwarzer Peter. <laughs> no. Thanks very much, Marie. We're um, looking forward to getting our teeth into this one. So, as Marie says, it's set in the snow, the great silence. It's only the second time we've done a Western. And Although it's, it's the second, second one set snow in snow. <laughs> <laughs> it's a second snowbound this is Western. brilliant. I like the, what oh, we're doing dear. here. We're, we're subverting the genre. But no. Um, in our reviews, that is. Um, a very good mm-hmm. choice. Were you familiar with this one? I knew the name mm-hmm. um, because of Kobuchi, yeah, who did Django, but I hadn't seen it. I've not seen Django either. I'm afraid really? to admit. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It's Nero, isn't it? Frank yeah, Nero. Franco Nero, as opposed to Frank Cafe Wolf. Nero, <laughs> as opposed to Frank Wolf, who plays a comedy sheriff in this. Oh yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh, he's quite good. So anyway, let's explain the setup a little bit. We're in an age of bounty hunters in the Wild West. Utah, I think it's meant to be. Mm-hmm. We've got silence. silence. Jean-Louis Trintagnon, who doesn't say a word apart from when he's portrayed as a small child and says "mama." Yeah, twice. Yeah, that's, that's all you need to know about that. Yeah, we get his <laughs> origin story. Yeah, the setup's basically there's a good good guy bounty hunter, which is Silence, whose vocal cords get slashed in a, in his little origin story, and Loco. Who, who plays Loco? Who I plays wonder? Loco? Who's going Loco? It's it's Klaus Kinski, and he's not in Acapulco. No, I thought Kinski was great in this. Obviously, I love Kinski, but yeah, I'm used yeah. to seeing him in much more high-minded films, all the Herzog stuff. He did an awful lot of stuff like this, but he's he looks great in this, doesn't he? He's very restrained, even though he's called Loco. <laughs> he's got the look of mm. he's got the Loco look, as opposed to he's going ape shit like he does in later movies that people will be more familiar with. I guess, yeah, if you know Kinski from other films, you're used to just how bananas he can get. <laughs> Whereas here, he's just got that quite cold, he's got a very black sense of humour in it. Well, he's, he's, he's able bastard. to balance that with uh, the, the, the matter-of-factness of, you know, he's a bounty hunter, he's like, he's there's money on people's heads, he's going out there, he's getting these heads, he's getting his money, and it's all within the remit of the law. Mm. Also, you've got Silence, who is trying to... He's uh, getting his revenge, but he's doing it within the remit of the law. He won't fire upon someone until they've fired upon yeah, him. He's got his own... Well, that's the law, but it's also got his own moral code going on, which is yeah. one of the slightly troubling things with this. It's not too troubling. It's just that the villain is definitely the villain. Mm. Loco is Loco. Um, Silence, even though he's a bounty hunter, you get the sense he's, got he's, got a, he's a good guy. <laughs> yeah, given he doesn't say anything, did he... Um, did he endear himself to you at all? Did any kind of personality or character come out? Not really. No. For me, anyway. I've only ever seen him before, I think, in The Conformist. Uh, Bertolucci's Conformist. I know he was a huge actor at the time. and He was. He said he'd only do a Western if he didn't have to speak. And right. that's, that's so why he did this him. movie. And he also... I don't know whether it's apocryphal. It's obviously something I've read online that he thought up the uh, ending as well. Right, the end is going to be a tricky thing because yeah. we shouldn't really discuss it, even though it's probably one of the most notorious things about the film. I mean, do, were you aware of what the ending is? I had no idea. Right, well, let's not really discuss it then. Mm. <laughs> yeah, and the, the plot, such as it is, these two guys cross 
swords or guns quite early on but it's it's kind of like a Bond villain meeting isn't it they yeah. both obviously hate each other and aware of each other but don't come to blows or anything it's later um, one of the women there her husband is killed by Kinski and she's very keen for revenge <laughs> very keen she's hell bent keen. hell bent on <laughs> revenge um, so she gets silence to um, help her out there and yeah you know you've got the pretty typical setup of a western then you've got um, a useless sheriff Although he was one of my favourite things about it. I really it. liked him, yeah. Frank Wolf, who I read committed suicide. <laughs> oh, God, I was going to say, he's Ultimately. full of, of humour and uh, joie well, de vivre. <laughs> I think he's good, because he is there for comic effect, which does stop the whole thing becoming too grim. Because it does have a feeling of one of those Sergio Leone things, not just because it's a spaghetti western, but it's got that mixture of very grim comedy and really horrible violence as well in it. And I think the sheriff... You could imagine Eli Wallach playing him, couldn't you? He has <laughs> yes. a similar look. He turns up, he's just... I think when he's, he's first sort of set upon by bandits and he's going to sort of have a go at them, but his gun's frozen. All the other bandits are prepared for this and they've had their guns kind of wrapped in furs and whatnot. But and it's uh, his horse. Oh, that's it! His very first line is when he's trying to get his horse through the snow and it's like right up to the, the hot top of the horse's legs and he's going to the horse, you're a disgrace to the army. <laughs> Good soldier. But ultimately, again, I don't want to discuss what the scene is, but eventually the sheriff's character does turn. I think I saw him in a bit of a different light as the um, as the film pressed on. Yeah, he's kind of like the... He goes the, from a stooge to someone you got some. As, yeah, he stands up to what's going on to yeah. some degree. But because he has that light-heartedness, he imbues certain scenes with a necessary uh, moral righteousness which yeah. otherwise was lacking I suppose because it's very I mean yeah it's the wild west I've I've not seen that many westerns but they're all pr pretty much follow the same formula and even that show Deadwood that HBO produced it's all very grim it's just everyone's out to get everyone There's, it's just backstabbing all yeah. the way to make money as you possibly can and this in some ways was also a slight downfall because uh, a big portion of the latter half of the story is about silence falling in love and vice versa Pauline who yeah. who wants him to do the the hit I was always thinking of the League of Gentlemen when you know. <laughs> pens Pauline <laughs> well, yeah. which because she hires him I presume a few days after her husband's been killed and she falls in love with him within that few days and it's a bit sort of uh, it's just a bit of a not quite a marriage of convenience yeah. for the story I mean it was almost I'm trying to think did did she just fall in love with him or did she make clear that was how she was going to pay him I, it, I was ambiguous to me yeah okay because um, I know uh, she was wanted elsewhere wasn't mm, she by yeah. this unruly tradesman in the uh, in the village yes who has who is implicated with Silence's past as well is this the um, mm. the guy with the astonishing chops yeah who's had his thumbs cho uh, shot off in the past. Yeah. But yeah, eventually, I don't think this is spoiling too much, there is a there is a sort of sex scene between Silence and Pauline. I've got to say, it sounds like I'm obsessed with this, because I said last time that <laughs> Fellini's Casanova was a very unsexy film. It's not a very sexy scene, but it goes on for ages. Mm. And the thing I'm going to compare it to, in fact, maybe over the course of the next year or something, we can get together the least sexiest sex scenes. <laughs> It's kind of like Dolph Lundgren in Showdown in Little Tokyo. Oh, God, yeah, with... Uh, with Tia... Not, oh, what's her name? I was going to say Tia Leone. That's, um, Marissa Tomei. No, not Miss... No, oh, no, no, no it's uh, Barbara Carrera's daughter. Is it? 
Who's yeah. the girl from Wayne's World? Yeah, Barbara Carrera's daughter. Really? Tia Carrera. I didn't know that. Yeah. But yeah, that, that scene in Showdown in Old Tokyo was previously the, <laughs> the most flat sex scene I've ever seen with just Dolph Lundgren looking like he's concentrating and then smiling. <laughs> but this Maybe was kind of similar. He looked, he looked like his mind was on the job, but not in the way you might expect. <laughs> it might have been on another job. Oh, <laughs> like I say, the end to this is notorious. And, oh, you're going to pour me out some more mulled wine. Thank you very much. Plastic measuring joke. Yeah, no, we're not cutting any corners here. (laughs) The ending is the most notorious thing about this. I didn't realise I'd seen this before until it got to the end. Oh, wow. (laughs) Isn't necessarily a bad thing. I just think it probably says something about my attitude to spaghetti westerns, which they work on archetypes all the time. Yeah. And I think at the time I saw it, I'm pretty sure it may have been on movie drum. 20 odd years back at that point Kinski wouldn't have loomed quite so large in my uh, conscience so yeah it wasn't till it got to this finale that I remembered I'd seen it and I've got to say it's it's not that long a film it's an hour and 40 which by spaghetti western standards isn't that greater greater stretch but it did feel like it was going on a little bit yeah it felt slightly padded out I think it was it's kind of rip roaring along for quite a while until silence has to go to do the hit for Pauline as it were and then it just stretches out a bit too long in that middle section or just towards the end where he needs to get rid of Loco on her behalf and you have these little asides going on such as there's a sort of showdown between Loco and the sheriff because Loco's been arrested, he's going to be removed to another uh, well to a prison I suppose or a larger town. He's in the local lockup taunting the prostitute yeah (laughs) (laughs) he's having some little fling with the sheriff isn't she yeah and yeah it just sort of it it doesn't go anywhere for about 10 or 15 minutes Mm. which probably could have been shaved off talking about shaved off do you hear about the special effects for this no most of it was filmed in the Dolomites in Italy during winter times but then the actual village Snow Hill I think the night scenes were filmed using shaving foam to stay in the snow. <laughs> wow. Gallons of shaving foam. That, that didn't come across. No. I, mean, I thought the landscape in it was really beautiful. Yeah. Brilliantly done, especially that bit with the horse, you know, who's a disgrace to the army. It's the best a man can get. But also, no, I'm glad you said that. I'd forgotten it was called Snow Hill, because the whole time I was watching it, because I'm from near Birmingham, that's the name of oh, the cheaper yeah. train station you have to get to if you're on Chilton Railways. Which, uh, <laughs> so I've when, been through yes, that, yeah. <laughs> Near the jewellery quarter. I did enjoy it, but I think one of its problems is that, obviously, Kinski so overshadows Silence the hero that you're mm. you're keen to get back to him all the time you don't really care that much about Silence partly because you, you don't know anything about him because he doesn't speak and I've got to say it has a lot of scenes where people are inexplicably filling in the gaps for him they're, they're telling the audience yeah, what they yeah, need yeah. to know about it. oh I hear you're that guy who never shoots people unless they're <laughs> drawn first and all this kind of stuff it's just unfortunate that you never really get to connect with him at all. Whereas Kinski, you're, yeah, identifying with Kinski is probably never a good move. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, maybe that's kind of the uh, part of the appeal for maybe the director, like Kabuchi, had in his mind that he knew that Kinski was probably the more uh, effervescent of the people. Yeah, that charismatic. Whereas, and even if like. Tantanion went into the film uh, knowing that he wasn't going to speak and stuff. It's quite an important role, but it, he's almost a foil, I suppose, mm. for Kinski throughout. And that, the, yeah, that was the big draw for me. I think Marie has said in the past that like the 
it's the Kinski character that definitely appeals, and it's, it's not surprising. Mm. I did want to chuck in another little nugget of information there, a little uh, anecdote. Oh, go on. <laughs> yeah, this is my, one of Michael Haneke's favourite films, apparently, because of the ending. Right. Which we keep saying because is that when of the Klaus ending. Kinski sends a videotape. Yeah. <laughs> but he said it's just kind of unprecedented, you know the. Um. Yeah. So I don't know how much Guffy. Did. I, I've read Kinski and Cut, but what do you believe in that? <laughs> wow. What? So even though we're not going to reveal the ending, people probably have some inkling that it's it's quite important. somewhat somewhat downbeat. Um, so oh, is it? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, thanks Marie for cheering us up this Christmas. Yeah, that. it's just what we wanted. Well, there's snow. There's snow. There definitely is snow at yeah. Snow Hill. Shaving cream. As yeah. Well. Had you read much more about Kabuchi? Um, Olds and Sods. Right, because I also saw he'd done a spaghetti western, I think, called The White, the Yellow and the Black, which is, looking at the poster, does have Eli Wallach and Uh, a Chinaman and a black guy. This is potential fodder. Well, there's that. (laughs) The last show we mentioned, that's Patrick McGowan, Spaghetti Western. So we may do a spaghetti special at some point. Yeah, that that sounds great. I mean, I quite like to add my knowledge of spaghetti westerns or westerns in general is pretty poor. So I'm I'm always up for a, another serving of carbonara. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank you for that, Marie. Merry Christmas. Listen, I don't like your face or your manners. So watch out, or you'll be down there with them. So over the last few shows we've been asking for people to send in their uh, notable films of the year that they've seen whether it be a new film or an old film something that they've never seen before basically that's um, affected them in such a manner that they need to report it to <laughs> midnight video counseling <laughs> god it's not non-governmental organization that we're, we're a quango we're a quacker <laughs> have you got any more malt wine to we've uh, got a drop yes we're going to have to go to the shop we may have to um, this is a uh, Thank you. Jim's filling his saddlebags here. Absolutely. So yes, so we got some feedback on that, but also, you know, you know, it felt like it would be wrong for us to not join in for a change. Yes. <laughs> so, um, films of the year. I've got fewer than you. We've, we've not. We don't know what each other's are, but we've we've kind of had a quick chat about this. So I've got three. Certainly, of the films we've reviewed on the podcast, my top one would be Silent Partner. Wow. I'm not going to say Topical it was like as well. Yeah, it's got Father Christmas. Yeah, everything wonderful. Good. I'm not going to say it's like a film I've gone back and watched, but I remember being so impressed by it, and it for the first time in years, it was one of those films that I used to probably see films like this a lot when I was younger, and probably didn't know as I hadn't seen as many films. Mm. But it was the first time I watched something that just really surprised me, and it was like a familiar genre, but wasn't doing anything in a by the book way. But it wasn't deliberately trying to be arsy about it it genuinely just seemed like the guy's approach to making it was so original and I just so enjoyed that feeling of not knowing where it was going Yeah, and yeah I loved it um, so like I say it's not like the best film ever made but it, it really made me kind of strangely nostalgic for how I used to watch films when I was probably about 12 or 13 which, which, which no sounds like yeah no, I mean it no. sounds um, demeaning but no it was it was yeah, getting my wonder level yeah. my wonder was back a little bit there um, I agree. Another film we covered, um, which I really, really enjoyed, was Safety Last, the Harold Lloyd film. I was so pleased to see that again because Harold Lloyd I've got great memories of as a kid. But I think, as far as I can remember, this was the first time I'd sat through a silent movie all the way through. And it was great that it was 
so enjoyable and seemed to have been made. I think I was possibly of the opinion that silent films were done in a quite of a churn them out ramshackle way. Apart from being really funny and engaging and dramatic, it was just the way that it did seem to have been made with exactly as much skill as a film should be made today. Undoubtedly. You know, it wasn't just, oh, it's it's enough that we could just throw them hanging off a clock. Everything had been built up and you really... And, yeah, I think I remember saying on the review that what happened in the film were things that people could easily relate to now, you know, 80-odd mm. years, 90-odd years after it was made. So really great to see that and definitely want to check out some more Howard Lloyd. You were telling me there's um, a fop at the moment, have his... Definitive collection, like nine discs or something yeah. for £12. Yeah, there'll certainly be a lot more Howard Lloyd next year for me. Mm-hmm. And finally, not one we've reviewed, Mishima, which you lent me recently. Yes. But it just knocked me out. Again, kind of like with Silent Partner, it seemed I used to watch, I used to see a lot of films not like this, but had the same effect of, wow, I've never seen someone do a film that's, you really felt that was somebody's vision. And you, I don't really feel I get to see that so much nowadays. No. Maybe it's just I'm not watching the right kinds of films. But um, yeah. if you've not seen this, Mishima, you know, based on the true story of um, the Japanese writer who... Well, I don't want to go too much into it, but the set design in it is fantastic. The Philip Glass music, even though you can... There's a sense with Philip Glass, if you've heard one piece of his music, you've heard it all. But he is brilliant, isn't he? And this is his first, yeah. like... Uh, apart from Kainer Skatsi. yeah. And it's been used ever since. Yeah, you, you, it was a shame because when I heard that main theme, I remember it from a, a train advert. Yes, yeah, yeah. Or something. <laughs> but the whole approach to how it was made, it may sound like a pretentious conceit, but the fact it merges Mishima's own writings with what actually happened on the last day of his life, um, I really recommend that. I thought it was absolutely fantastic. So much so that I've um, got hold of American Gigolo and Cat People, his remake of Cat nice, People. Nice, nice. Because I've not seen either before. Uh, I know Cat People's got a bit of a people have a bit of a sniff, sniffy kind of Amazing attitude towards soundtrack. it because of um, the Val Luton original. Yeah. And American Gigolo seems like one of those prime '80s films that's really slick. But I'm I looking forward to that seeing recently, those. Though. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I, well, that's, I like a bit of gear. So. Um, it's just weird to think that after that, after Mishima, which you thought would be like the peak of his. Um, artistic you know whatever this this guy's going places he then yeah. did what was it called Bought to Light or something what was that thing we watched with Michael J Fox and John oh, Jett oh god yeah um, Light of Day something yeah, like Light that Light of Day which just looks like a TV drama yeah it's poor and was hackneyed mm. really hackneyed so um, poor old Paul Schrader but Mishima really recommend that absolutely fantastic never enough for me I mean I, I splurged a lot of money on that Criterion collection mm. DVD copy of it but it's worth it the commentary is really good on it as well. There's loads of extras, amazing book. Yeah. It's it's just one yeah, a brilliant, brilliant. The, the extras, film. the 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 interviews with the set designer. Yeah. That was the first thing she'd ever done. Wasn't yes, it? yeah. Um, but also, it it came with a documentary. Um, I think like an omnibus or a BBC documentary from around the yeah. time the film came out, which was depressing to watch because it was so good. And you just know that now <laughs> BBC do. documentaries don't do that anymore. <laughs> now you've got Alan Yentob doing Imagine, which is just. <sighs> So anyway, yeah, those are my top three of the year. So Quality. yeah, very very little actual new releases. In fact, none. <laughs> be fair to say, I haven't got any either. Yeah, come on then, Phil. I'll try and be quick. I know, I know what your favourite thing that you've discovered this year is. Really? Yeah. I don't think you do. It's the Star Wars holiday special. <laughs> <laughs> we'll come back to that another time. <laughs> 
No, we did uh, we did endure some of that. For me, it, it has been the year of Burton, Richard. Wow, I've always known Richard Burton as an actor, as the voice of War of the Worlds, etc. You, you played all the guitar solos in War of the Worlds. <laughs> but on, we've covered two of his films on this show: Boom, Joseph Loves His Boom, and Bluebeard, and those both boomed me away they absolutely blew me away I enjoyed them so much they were they came out of nowhere not too dissimilar times I think space of four years or yeah. so uh, just great and he's just regaling them and outside of that I've watched Villain as well where he's has Vic Dakin the uh, based on Reggie Cray or Ronnie I forget which one again I just absolutely loved it and also the Medusa Touch which I watched with you before we recorded the Wild at Heart commentary again just Jack Gold who did who uh, I don't know there's little links that I'm trying to bring back to the to the show but yeah Burton has dominated my year and Boom and Bluebeard are the highlights from the show elsewhere I've tried to get some love for Argento I've been <laughs> lacking for quite a while uh, after my numerous attempts to get into Suspiria and failing miserably Tenebrae did it for me uh, just fantastic such an amazing film really odd in its it felt quite removed from what Argento had been doing previously it was very light and bright uh, less baroque and over well it was kind of over the top still but great score and he'd taken a lot of influence from Zulawski's possession you know the lighting cinematography whatever it, it was just great and the Tenebrae album I think I've worn that to death within the last few months I, I just can't remember all the names involved with it but it's right. Goblin ex-Goblin minus one member so they named it after three of the right. three of the competition but Claudio Simonetti is like the main guy in that and I'll quickly go through my last three uh, we were talking about Japan just two minutes ago uh, Sanshiro Sugata Kurosawa's official debut movie which I saw as part of the 70 movie challenge which Mondo Dan um, set himself and then numerous people copied it uh, that was absolutely spellbinding that's the best Kurosawa I've seen considering it's debut it was light years ahead of anything I've seen in terms of narrative and how it carried the story I've not seen anything like that since to be honest it's just brilliant also deep end on the BFI flip side series Skolimovsky Polish director's debut in England in 1969-70 with Jane Asher um, wonderfully surreal beautiful kind of unrequited love story very odd you know it's obviously a crazy Polish man filming a film in the early 70s Although, yeah, Polish guy, it's set in Britain, but wasn't it filmed in, like, Germany or somewhere? Uh, parts of it were, yeah, yeah. in Munich, I yes. think. Yes. Yeah. yeah, but also in the, uh, near where I live, in... Leightonstone? Leightonstone. Yes. Yeah, in an old swimming pool there. So there were segments in London. Yeah. And last but not least, again, part of the 70 movie challenge, Hukla, or Huckle, as we probably say in English which means hiccup in Hungarian uh, Georgi Palfi's debut he did Taxidermia which is kind of notorious but this is pretty much 90 minutes no dialogue it's just incredible I can't give enough love to that and get the region one because it's got um, a commentary with the director obviously you read the commentary but thanks to Michael Little who sent me that 
when he was on the Mondo board. Oh right. So cheers, Michael. I'm sorry I haven't been in touch, and I hope I hope you don't think we're taking the Mickey out of your uh, yeah, Michael's your amazing quiet. letter. So thanks to you guys for your films of the year, your discoveries. One here from our pal Colin Waters in Edinburgh. Earlier this year, I was commissioned to write a piece about Werner Herzog, which I used as an excuse to watch the Herzog films I hadn't yet seen. I'm ashamed to admit I hadn't until then seen Fitzcarraldo, which I liked, though perhaps I enjoyed more the making of documentary, mm. Burden of Dreams. The scene in Burden, which depicts the film, re- the film crew releasing the fictional hero's boat down dangerous rapids, is more exciting than the corresponding scene in Fitzcarraldo itself, because Herzog... Kinski and his camera crew are actually risking their lives, and Burden captures the danger better. The other gem I came across is a little-known film, Incident at Loch Ness, which was co-written by Herzog and in which he plays himself. The idea is that he has come to Scotland to direct a documentary debunking the myth of the Loch Ness monster. Four-fifths of this mockumentary are a spoof of the legends that surround Herzog. Then, unexpectedly in the last reel, it turns into a proper monster movie, I really enjoyed it, and I'm saddened to see it's almost impossible to get hold of in the UK. You can buy import DVDs from Amazon. And uh, Next up, from Stephen Cannon. Hey guys, first contact with your Midnight Video franchise. I'm chiming in to propose one of my favourite movies from the 90s, Blood, Guts and Bullets and Octane. It never really hit the radar with exploitation fans as near as I can tell, but the semi-improvised dialogue in director Joe, open bracket, smoking aces... Those brackets. Carnahan's film debut reminded me of a more kinetic version of David Mamet's Glengarry Glen Ross. The story is a sort of cross between Reaper Man and Pulp Fiction, and I admired what I call Stevie's Law of Beginners Mojo to refer to the definite to the definitely real phenomenon for some directors to make the best movie first and then go downhill after that. Presumably because they become self-conscious about the filmmaking process and it narrows their imagination. I would cite Rodriguez's El Mariachi, Tobe Hooper's TCM, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and George Romero's Night of the Living Dead as examples. I'm aware that the counter-examples of this law far outnumber the examples. Anyhow, I think I've made a strong case for Blood, Guts, Bullets and Octane, and I'll be looking forward to hearing what you have to say about it. Well, we've got to watch it first. Yes, I've not, I've not seen it. <laughs> I've not seen I've not even heard of it. I've not even seen Smoke and Aces. I've seen that many times. I've only heard on, of that. Though, yeah. yeah. Seen it on shelves, but yeah, thanks, Steve. Yeah, we'll, you know what? We'll, Let's we'll, do that next year. Yeah, okay. why not? Let's why the that. hell not? Yeah, we're in Christmas mode, we're <laughs> making promises we can't keep. No, we'll definitely <laughs> do that. Lyndon Dunham, hi, mate. Um, there's been a few monsters District 9, In Bruges, Brown's Requiem, but the one that really stood out was Black Death. Loved its sinister atmosphere and thought it had more, a lot more moral complexity than you'd expect from a guys on a mission film. Everything about it was seemed just right. Even Caris von Houten's Dutch accent didn't seem out of place as it made her character all the more exotic. You were nodding furiously through that. Yeah, I love Black Death. Yeah, yeah. I, it was what, amongst one of the first Blu-rays I bought uh, not that long ago. Um, I went to see it at the cinema. I actually went all the way to Wandsworth to watch it because I had a Cineworld pass at the time. Yeah. And it was the only Cineworld uh, cinema in uh, London showing it. But yeah, I wasn't disappointed. I love Christopher Christopher Smith as a director. Anyway, I think he's interesting. But it's really, really good film. And you were you were a fan of monsters as well, weren't you? I think monsters I loved. Yeah, yeah, it's super. And from Stuart Barr, Cannibal Holocaust, and he also met Ruggiero Diodato into the bargain. 
this film is amazing, so influential, and it has something to say. And yet, the animal torture is indefensible. Yeah. I've seen Cannibal Holocaust. I'm, I think I had a double bill of Holocaust and Ferox like many years ago with my mates, and yeah, I, I, I kind of found it really hard to get through those animal torture bits um, personally. Yeah. It's there's, not such a no film need. that I'd probably have to watch again. No, no. But it's one of those things that is sort of on the video nasties documentary. It's amazing that people thought it was real. You know, they were fooled by that whole fan footage thing because it's so obviously. Not oh right, I thought you meant like that. They actually did that to the animals. Oh no, they all had their equity cards. <laughs> they really that did. turtle keeps turning up all over the place <laughs> in the rules. He was doing those like air freight car air freshener <laughs> adverts. Repeat offender Marie Hepworth, who's uh, coming back for the second Name time. Name a number show. to the governor. Yes. Also watched Cannibal Holocaust for the first time. Really didn't know what to make of it, but definitely won't be easily forgotten. I saw Sauvé's stage fright. Sauvé. Sauvé. <laughs> you, you're always good at. I saw this correct- the other week with Nathan. Oh really? Yeah. yeah was a- but anyway, yes. Sauvé's stage fright for the first time and really enjoyed it. A great slasher film, and who wouldn't love a killer in an owl mask? I see most of the new releases working in a cinema, but my favourite from this year's big releases was Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Expected it to be beyond awful, but as a fan of the original films, I was so pleased when it came when I came out, having liked it so much. Plus mentions for the brilliant drive and for Kill List. Wasn't sure if I liked it at first, but couldn't get it out of my head for weeks after seeing it. Now those last two films, Drive and Kill List, I, I was surprised they weren't on your little list. Just I thought Drive, you wouldn't shut up about it. Yeah, I, I didn't really want to talk. You about You even it. bought one of those bowling jackets with the pu- <laughs> pubic lice on the back of it, just like um, <laughs> old what's his chops, pubic Ryan Phillips, lad. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I did, but you know, what's I think I've watched better films. I, I lo- as much as I loved both of them, and I really did. Um, I could wax lyrical about them. I think the films that I said that have um, impressed me more are the old stuff. You know, yeah. it's kind of the point of the podcast. You know? But uh, yeah, I mean, I've not watched that many new releases this year. But I gotta say, yeah, Rise of the Planet of the Apes uh, was the best, genuinely the best one I watched at the cinema. I mean. I'm not sure I'd be in a rush to see it again. And uh, yeah, as we're at Christmas now recording, every time I'm going around train stations, um, they've got like video clips of it on all yeah, the billboards because the DVDs coming out. Absolutely, yeah. But no, that was much better than it needed to be. Yeah. Know, as opposed to let's say um, Green Lantern. <laughs> I probably won't catch up with Green Lantern. No, yeah. don't don't bother. From Ross Giles. That's Ross Giles. Yeah. Not Giles Edwards. <laughs> Way down under in uh, sunny Wellington. My discoveries of this year. Number one, Phantom of the Paradise. Hurrah. I've been meaning to watch this for years and finally found the time this year and it's a fantastic early department. I'm not a huge fan of the whole rock opera subgenre, but this is just a great fun movie. Number yeah. two, Rolling Thunder. This plays regularly on the NG- MGM channel here in New Zealand and gets better with every viewing. A frankly awesome ending is preceded by a surprisingly thoughtful narrative and excellent performances especially from Devane. All this and a hook hand for action. <laughs> Number three, Cat of Nine Tales. I came into this with low expectations of it being a lesser Argento effort, but it was a lot better than the general consensus would have you believe. It's not as groundbreaking as Argento's other jolly, but it's a good, solid thriller. There you have it. Have a great Christmas from the New Zealand fan club and keep up the fantastic work. Cheers, Ross. Ooh. Okay, and finally, also from Lyndon, again, hi mate, uh, I've mentioned it before, but with all the buzz around Kill List, I watched Down Terrace, Ben Wheatley's first film from a year or two back. 
rough and ready in places, but thought it was really a really good example of zero-budget filmmaking. I like the way it suggested more than it showed, i.e. the relationship with the big London firm and the police investigation into the family. I've still not seen this, but you you really like it. Yeah, it's, it's effing brilliant. Yes. <laughs> it's really, In fact, really it was good. one of the... Um, one of the quiz clips I think wasn't it no no never an early one. Oh Can't no remember. maybe the last one oh, I think shit. it was I can't remember now you don't know what's going on now do you I've done three quizzes <laughs> come on give me a break you're tripping <laughs> yourself up oh yeah Down Terrace is superb and Stephen Thrower did the uh, score apparently really yeah electronic oh, score okay incidental music so thanks to everyone for getting in touch and I hope the next year brings as many peculiar delights yeah, for everyone. Definitely. I don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Arthur, of course it's terrific. But there's more. Everyone will have a cookie. I bought extra for the Wookiee. I just hope that everybody can be here. If they all have marked the date, and if none of them is late, we'll have our greatest of Christmases this year. It's time for our second Christmas cracker from Ooh. one of our wonderful listeners. And this time... It's Phil McGee, all the way from sunny Scotland. Ready for this? I'm ready as I'll ever be. Okay, let's I've go. I've got my thistle whistle. <laughs> Hi guys, it's Phil here. Hope you're all doing well. And the movie I've chosen is My Favourite Year, starring the great Peter O'Toole. I'd first seen it a couple of years ago on an old movie channel, and it really caught me by surprise because it got drawn right into it, and I really loved it. So I hope you guys enjoy watching it as much as I did. So all it means is me to wish you and the Midnight Massive a very Merry Christmas. And keep up the great podcast into the new year. My dear fellow, what I choose to do with my schlong is my business. How's business? So, in the wake of The Stuntman, an absolutely astonishing film from the early 80s, Peter O'Toole was riding the crest of um, stardom, I guess, because he was up for an Academy Award, wasn't he, just before this? Well, he'd been Lawrence of Arabia 20 years earlier. 20 years, years what he did in the, he'd not done that much in the interim really a little drinking well quite a I lot I think he'd been making Peter O'Toole because <laughs> the amazing thing is yeah I mean I think people will be familiar with the he'd stuff man, but he seems to be playing more. up to the Peter O'Toole image here isn't he this um, Errol Flynnish but um, yeah the idea is this film uh, my favourite year is set in 1952 or Okay, that's that's not my favourite. You're thinking of the studio. I'm thinking of this, yes. <laughs> Where we have a young TV writer, Benji Sheila S- Booth. He looks like him, doesn't it's he? It's unbelievable. Benji Stone and it? Peter O'Toole is Alan Swan. Mm. Um, yeah, an Errol Flynn-style swashbuckling film star who's now on his uppers a little bit. I mean, no, I think he's still a big name, isn't he? But his in movies, yeah, in movies. But he's um, he's pretty much Peter O'Toole. He's a complete drunk, um, a real larger-than-life character. Yeah. So great to get some O'Toole in there at last. And I've got to say, with this film, I think O'Toole was absolutely fantastic in it. <laughs> what would you say? I was amazed by how much like the film was like what it was portraying Mm. it really reminded me of On the Air Lynch and Frost's On the Air which I know you don't like anyway so I didn't think you'd be feeling this that much Uh, it's that zany wacky very character based comedy so each each character within the the film is almost a character within the show that they're portraying even the mean. people who are writing the, the people behind the scenes are very much like sitcom exactly, characters. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. 
because this is um, perpetuating this weird sort of because I just felt like I was watching a TV show a lot of the time apart from when O'Toole was in it because he really like he lent it gravitas that was the great thing because yeah no you're completely right there it did feel like something that was affectionate about because yeah it's um, it, Mel Brooks produced or it's Brooks Films wasn't it? I'm not sure if he yeah. was an executive producer but it was apparently um, you I don't think you need to know too much about the history of American TV to spot that this uh, the main character in this not the main character sorry the character it revolves around is this big American comedian called King Kaiser who's going to be a variation on Sid Caesar and this is where um, famously Mel Brooks Woody Allen uh, Carl Rayner um, I think Neil Simon as well got mm. their start and what we're seeing is the back room here the, the writers um, trying to get their act together and um, and Benji Stone this young guy who's viewed as a bit of a schmuck and a problem I had with him I just found him not terribly likeable like Sheila Booth yeah and Benji's a young writer he's keen to make a big name for himself he's clearly very much the junior partner even if that I think the first time we see him he's being sent out to get kind of snacks for the rest of the writers room getting that wrong getting it wrong and they're desperately trying to get a show together it's one of these things where there's a lot of backroom fighting and whatever and Alan Swan this film star played by Pete O'Toole is going to sort of come in but the big gag is that he's drunk and I, I don't mean to be disparaging about that because it's a good in a nutshell kind of setup isn't it mm. I, th I think if you're going to do a good comedy film the setup needs to be something in a nutshell that you can just describe to someone and they can their mind can sort of imagine what sort of chaos is going to ensue if I can use that cliche but yeah if you're doing live TV and your big draw is a drunk and completely unreliable you can see why that's going to be a funny film and yeah as soon as O'Toole appears he's brilliant I mean we've already we've already made this point which is just even though he's a really over the top character he seems the, the, the realest person in it everyone else does seem like quite a weakly sketched out sitcom character well it's like they're always waiting for the canned laughter or something that's a really good point yeah because um, like I say Neil Simon was also kind of part of this background I remember in about 96 he did a play called Laughter on the 23rd floor I think which I went, I went to see in London Gene Wilder was in it oh right and it felt very much like that, but almost it's like watching something on stage, you can do this because the performances do have to be that broad, and also the actors probably have learnt it to leave a little pause in so the audience can laugh. And it's almost like that had happened with this film, that yes. left little pauses at the yeah, end so yeah. that the audience in the cinema or TV could laugh. And if they don't, or if you're watching it on your own... <laughs> you know, <laughs> It kind of deflates because there are, in fairness, I think there's probably there's a lot of good jokes in this, but mm. it's just that it's almost like the characters hit a punchline, and because of the way they're written, it's almost like they'll do their joke, they'll have that good one-liner put down or something, but then they'll they'll go further with it, mm. they'll do a few variations on it or repeat it, and then leave this gap, and it just it was fatal, you know. Um, yeah, I I wonder if maybe it's also being. Uh, view through modern eyes that might taint that in some ways although to me this isn't that older film it's like 1982 and yeah. to me that feels like, like I think we said last show Airplane and stuff was around it felt this if I was watching something from the 60s or something I'd maybe expect it but this seems like comedy and filmmaking was much more sophisticated at this point but it's one of the few films to hold a 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Well, our work here is redundant. <laughs> I don't know how many people have reviewed <laughs> it, mind you, but I totally um, see that point of view. But it, that very 
um, fakeness, that um, harking back to yeah. yesteryear, which made it really work for me. I mm. like that. I like the. Uh, well, it's not even ambiguity. Uh, it's. It seems so rooted in creating that favourite year, yeah. that world. Yeah. That it, it just did it. Like it, they just decided that like, the writer uh, Dennis Palumbo, I think, mm. who I got confused with the other Palumbo, who was uh, <laughs> the who was in the communist. It was witch hunts, wasn't it? There was another screenwriter, I think. All right. Oh no, not Trumbo. Oh, Dalton Trumbo. Trumbo. I'm thinking of Dalton Trumbo. You're though. getting confused. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, the more wine. <laughs> I'm not doing very good research, but it really seemed to me that they were going hell for leather for that angle. And it, at first, it took some getting used to, but then I just I was finding myself going with it because there was these like huge moments of. The real story happening, i.e., anything with Ben Stone chaperoning uh, Alan Swan around, there was a lot of, you know, there was a lot of heart to heart and stuff, but that was that offset by a very bizarre slapstick and over the top moments, which you'd expect to see in that kind of TV show, but they were using that shtick for mm-hmm. the whole movie, and I really liked that. I thought I thought it was quite a brave move, and I couldn't. Get, I didn't know what year it was made when I mm. first started watching. I kind of guessed because I'd seen the stuntman recently a few times, and he had the same hair. He still looked like Elijah Eli it? Wood. Eli it, I Wood. Think, yeah. And um, it, I thought, yeah, it's about that period. But I thought they did a really good job of making it timeless, but specified to that time. Right. Um, that worked for me like, really well. And given like. Ben Benji Stone's meant to be a kind of the, the figure we're identifying with. Mm. In this. Did you really sort of warm to him at all? It's not so much that I warmed to him. I just he just felt very drawn. Like he felt a very drawn figure, and it didn't bother me. It, I mean, he's meant to be Mel Brooks, isn't he? I think mm. he's kind little, of based yeah. on him loosely. And Mel Brooks isn't the nicest person in the world, <laughs> character-wise. You know, the, the same with Woody Allen. Even like you know, all these guys who've been cutting their teeth on this kind of show in that period. They're not particularly nice people. I, I, I'm not. You know the way he, he goes after the girl. Um, yeah, her name it's Jessica Harper, I think, is it? Yeah. Oh Christ! Yeah, it is, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Which, um, yeah, that's the. <laughs> that's an odd scene because it's like, all oh, right, you know, we've got the, we've got the. I'm not, I'm not having a go at it for this, but that's the scene where the, the, the main hero is going to be, you know, a romantic hero. He's, he's met this girl. He's impressing her with his wit, and that fell kind of flat for me but also it didn't go anywhere after that because that mm. comes at the right kind of point in the film it's like a third of the way in you think alright oh, this is going to be a romance this is going to carry us through the film um, it'll wobble then he'll get her back and she knows I don't think she appears for the rest of the film does she? Just... No very briefly yeah and there are a lot of peculiar points like that this is this this is Richard Benjamin's first film and like, like we've already said Peter O'Toole's so amazing in it and other things about it don't really work for me and it makes me wonder if a lot of that was to do with him um, O'Toole was such a professional that he brought all this all of these qualities to it and me- I was always watching it thinking maybe if this script was directed by somebody else and maybe if the act, the, the cast was different it would have worked a bit better for me because that whole scene with the romance which then doesn't go anywhere mm. um, again I don't want to spoil the ending of this but the very it's not like <laughs> The Great Silence but the very end of this, it has this last shot, then it has a voiceover from Ben Stone, yeah. which explains something which in any other film you'd have physically then seen as the lead out of the film. It sounds like it's got this kind of nice epilogue to it. 
which we don't see. We just have him saying, oh, the next day such and such went on. I just think, what? Why are you not showing this? Mm. And I'm not sure if it was um, the director not quite being sure of himself or whether there was a lot of studio interference in this mm. or something. But there were things like that that didn't quite work. I thought like the Kaiser stroke Caesar character, he really reminded me of uh, Alec Baldwin in Glen Gary, Glen Ross. Yeah, that's cute. I mean, I'm not sure again if this is deliberate, but he seems a stern. He doesn't seem to have a comedy bone in his body, does he? he seems, no. He seems like a. I mean, that's kind of the idea, I suppose, that he's just a bit of a nightmare to work with. But that's right. They're, they're all like. I'd say they're all very two dimensional characters. But possibly throughout. deliberately? Yes, definitely deliberate. I mm. think that's definitely what I gleaned from it. And, and like, O'Toole is this sort of. The fact that they're on TV, TV's live, it's running, you know, you can't perfect anything as such, you know, it's just got to be done. Yeah. Whereas you've got O'Toole comes in, he's got all this baggage, he's got a lot of stuff going on behind him, and he brings so much more to the film. And I, th I think that's really, I think that must be in the writing, I mm. think, because they do, <laughs> they do a brilliant, uh, I thought Die Hard was the first <laughs> film to, the fire uh, hose. with a fire hose, yes. but yeah, he, they do it with uh, O'Toole when he's drunk, and it worked brilliantly it was a quite a long gag but I, I thought it, it had me chuckling for a long time it was long which I, I, I half liked but again it was one when yeah this is O'Toole thinks he's his swashbuckling persona mm. and he, he's trying to get into a party a few floors down on a building so he uses a fire hose to kind of swing down from the building but then you get these two guys at the party talking for ages about who's that guy who's in those films yeah. what's his name no you know that guy he's like I don't need to see these two guys. The joke is that O'Toole's there, you know, and they should have seen him and just reacted immediately. They shouldn't have then dilute it with all these guys talking. It's um, quite uh, Isn't that showing the, the hoi polloi, though, isn't it? You know, in I don't care, period. I want a joke. <laughs> but I like the fact that it's kind of, it's this out-and-out -out comedy that isn't quite a comedy. It's like a sort of a period piece that, it's trying to be a comedy or it's a comedy that's trying to be a period piece it gets yeah, I, the fact that it's so messed up in some ways is what I find quite endearing about right. it because I just thought the, like I say the, the romance didn't go anywhere the subplot with um, oh, he, well he she, he endeared her to her that was enough because she spent the first 20 minutes fending him off mm. and then it was like alright oh, you know so, well that's it that's little subplot done that's done. <laughs> that's where that that box. That, there's no story arc. There's just things. Boxes are ticked and then sorted out and forgotten what? about. It's experiment. <laughs> yes. It's ahead of its time. <laughs> um, but this whole subplot with this local crime boss trying to yeah. get the, the King Kaiser character sorted out and that threat, I felt that didn't quite go as far as it should do I mean it, it gets the, the last. It gets her in the end, but I felt they could have done more with it. You know, it, okay. it, it just felt like script wise they could have done a few more drafts and I think it needed a better director and a, a, a better rounded cast but mm. O'Toole, it's well worth watching this for O'Toole, he's on I'm not going to say top form because that probably is the stuntman but um, yeah. he's, he, he, he really he really does a fantastic job here Who are you to talk to me like that you little Jiminy Cricket pest bastard So, mean that video quiz 3 we have a winner Hooray! <laughs> Is it the salt man? It's not the salt man. Someone, someone's managed to halt the salt. It's, <laughs> it's someone who wrote in a bit earlier. It's Ross Charles, all the way from NZ or NZ. I don't know how they say it, mate, but down there, down there in the bayou. Thanks for entering. As always, uh, people seem to uh, enjoy this, but not everyone wants a t-shirt. Come on, <laughs> who doesn't want a t-shirt? It's, it's the gift that keeps on giving. It is. 
could end up with Ask Paul K UK. Yeah, it could end up with some socks or deodorant or a midnight video t shirt. It's the perfect everyone it brightens up faces on Christmas morning. So Phil, I've been on Tenterhooks for a few weeks. What the hell were those clips? There are some obvious ones, but number one we've Not got many. <laughs> Not many <laughs> obvious ones. <laughs> Glen Gary Glen Ross, which has been referred to a number of times so far. Number two, Gaspar Noah's Enter the Void. Three, um football hooligan favourite there, I D. Love that film. For Once Upon a Time in China, as mentioned on uh, the story of film recently, I think. Number five, The Punisher, original <sighs> with Monsieur Dog Longong. Brilliant. Yeah, superb. Number six, Dark City, classic. With Rufus Sewell. Yeah, who I really like. He's great yeah. in Vinyan. Yeah. yeah. Have you seen Vinyan? No, he's 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 like Terence Stamp waiting to happen, isn't he? He's very good in Vinyan. Okay. So check it out. Number seven, Perdita Durango. Number eight, Meatball Machine. Number nine, New York Ripper. <laughs> uh, number ten, fucking Deadpool with Nicolas Cage. Wow, that looked astonishing. Is the whole film like that? Yes, directed by his brother, Christopher Coppola. Is The whole film is basically like that, but a million times worse with Michael Bean doing this terrible noirish voiceover. It, it's the most appallingly, amazingly bad, brilliant movie I've ever seen. Deliberately? I don't think so. I really don't think so. Should we cover it or not? I'd love to cover it. Mm, I've got nothing we'll but praise. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll probably dislike it immensely. Who knows? I, I can just imagine I'm only watching it in two-minute chunks. If it's all like that, because it's so intense. Uh, it's No, it's not as intense as And that, this is coming from someone... James Coburn's in it as well. Really? Yeah. Man, no, it looks too much to take in one go. And this <laughs> is someone who ate a whole Christmas pudding for breakfast a couple of days ago. <laughs> Really? Oh, For yeah. breakfast? Yeah. With brandy sauce? Single cream. Oh, that's even worse. Well done, Joe. Um, you're getting me confused. <laughs> well done, Ross. Congratulations. Well done, mate. I'll be sending you a T-shirt. I'll get in touch, email, sizes, postage. You, know, you don't have to pay that, don't worry, I'm joking. <laughs> okay, and more quizzes. Oh, yeah, I will do... Um, Because we're recording this... On the on Christmas Eve, obviously Christmas, the eve of Christmas. Yeah. There should be a quiz on the day of Christmas. <gasps> so you're going to have a great time with your family in France. <laughs> yeah. Hello, I'm Roger Moore, and I'd like to wish you all happy, happy holidays. And if you've got any turkey left over, you can send it to me. Phil, yes, it's time for our final Christmas cracker of the evening, which is just as well because we're running out of red wine. Yeah. So. This is from Rich Sampson. Which end are you going to grab? <laughs> wow, so we know what to get Rich for Christmas, which is a microphone. <laughs> um, he's not been able to do a little voicemail. However, in the tradition of Christmas cracker jokes, this has fallen out, <laughs> which I'm going to read. Hi, Phil. Hi, Jim. I have picked for you brain damage. I'm a huge Frank Henenlotter fan. I think he's a true cinema maverick, and I love the fact that he minds the body horror field, one of my all-time favourite genres. This is one of his lesser-talked-about films. I'm not aware of any of the podcasts covering it, and it would be great to see what you make of it. But I think something awful happened last night, and I can't remember it. I don't remember where I went or who I met or what I did. All I remember is feeling something sticky in my pants and then finding them covered in blood. Yeah, do you like Frank Henenlotter? Um... 
one of my well both of my brothers are quite a bit older than me but I remember one of them when I was very young and he'd be telling me about Death Race 2000 and all these kind of great sounding films scanners I remember him describing Basket Case and saying what a load of rubbish it is and saying how the effects look like morph and of course <laughs> what I remember of Basket Case is it's quite tongue in cheek isn't it <laughs> Just a little bit. It's quite of obvious that they're not <laughs> taking it terribly seriously. So um, just a little bit. Yeah, my brother's never going to listen to this. But um, <laughs> yeah, no, I've I've not seen this before. I remember it coming out. I remember it being covered in Starburst. No, I know he's got a great reputation for this. Yeah, tongue in cheek black comedy. So yeah, I was keen to watch this. Um, had you face. seen it before? I yeah, you, had you... I've seen it a couple of times. Yeah. I used to have it on VHS. So um, Phil, let's describe the setup for this. Elmer, Elmer, tell me what to say. Right. Um, <laughs> Basically, yeah. there's film opens. There's an old couple who are feeding who brains are overacting to overacting, astonishing. <laughs> who are feeding brains to something. We don't know what. This something disappears, much to their chagrin. And then cue uh, Brian waking up in bed, wondering what the hell's going on. Can't go on a date with his girlfriend because he's got this massive headache. Then we find out he's being injected with a weird serum by this uh, parasitic. parasitic entity who wants to feed on human brains. But he uses Brian as a vehicle to get them by yes. keeping his brain juiced up. Yeah, this parasite. The whole just... thing is a fucking drug man. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> this parasite called well, the the old couple call it. Elmer or Elmer. 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 But let's, let's, we don't need to go into all that. Let's call it Elmer for the sake of uh, convenience. It's a cross between, it's, it's kind of phallic, it's fecal, it looks like a length of intestine, and it also kind of looks like Ringo Starr. Did you get that? It has, you can see it's definitely got a mouth, but yes. when you get close ups, it's got these two eyes which are kind of at an angle, and it just reminds me how close it is to the mouth it does kind of look like a caricature of Ringo Starr it sounds nothing like him the voice of this parasite is uh, John Zachary who was a sort of horror show host a bit like um, Vampira and Elvira um, less buxom I imagine but I think I think even if we tell the people this isn't going to I think a lot of people have probably seen this anyway you can tell this is going to be a very um, knockabout kind of horror movie from the beginning. It's it's going to be played for laughs. But when this guy eventually finds uh, Brian, finds all this blood on the back of his on his pillow, he's searching his body, finds blood on the back of his hand. It's from his neck, and eventually, when we we the audience first see Elmer, he just pops around and, like I say, this kind of phallic-looking <laughs> thing, and just has this voice. Hello, hello, Brian. This I'd is like... the start of your new life. He's wonderful. I, th- I thought that put every- that encapsulated the whole film. The voice Definitely. is so perfect, and even my brother would probably get what the gist of this film is. And he like wasn't he- even credited. Like. No, he wasn't. Uh, which is the magic of Wikipedia. But yeah, like you say, it's a huge drugs metaphor. Brian, who I can imagine is probably a fairly straight guy before this, Elmer basically, yeah, he kind of he has a mouth with a needle that goes into the nape of the neck, and we have these great close-ups of a brain with kind of blue fluid seeping it's, over which then the, electrifies it's the them. exact fluid that they use in uh, <laughs> panty liner adverts in the 80s do you remember <laughs> do you remember that blue fluid they used to pour yes. it on and they'd be like which I think was oh. deliberately they chose blue rather than red didn't yeah they? of course that, but uh, yeah, to look as I can only and, presume yeah. that they had this in the states as well and Hen and Lotta thought oh this would be great to use this I think you might be reading too much into it really? Yeah. Oh. no I just thought blue was a really psychedelic kind of colour and 
A glowing toxic green, I would yes. But um, <laughs> as soon as Brian's juiced up, he goes off to a junkyard and sees the cars in beautiful colours, which I've got to say was a bit of a disappointment. Obviously, this was made on a very low budget, but I've seen um, I've seen acid trips depicted a lot more vividly. <laughs> yeah. On film. But yeah, I did. I was really enjoying this. You know, um, the the best thing about it though is Alma. You know, and. And also the act, those opening shots with the elderly couple, which just the way they acted um, really put me in mind. You've still not seen an Eating Rail, have you? The, no, the I haven't. No. Yeah. It put me in mind of that with this suburban couple who obviously had something horrendous going on. Yeah. But they were, they'd built their lives up. They were carrying on as they would do as it a normal the norm couple. But yes. Mm. The fact that the husband gets home with this bag of brains and is very apologetic and kind of beating himself up about it because they're not the greatest quality of brains. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, um, yeah, he's a and, French yeah, <laughs> and his his wife, who it must be said, uh, really reminded me of Ruth Gordon in Rosemary's yeah. Baby. The fact she puts a little sprig of like parsley or something <laughs> before taking this brain off and screaming for ages. This this would have this will go down uh, this year as um, probably the film that my neighbours would have uh, hated so much. The screaming in it, there's a lot of screaming, and it goes on forever, doesn't it? Yeah, and you're yeah. sitting there thinking, is it worth me turning the volume down? I did. This I is going to go on for because it's not going to be a shriek and a stop. It's going to be ah ah. <laughs> it's going to go on for several minutes, isn't it? There's there's a good half dozen scenes like that throughout yeah. the film, I think. Definitely. But yeah, sorry, I'm hogging the hogging the review. What, how, no, how did you find this? Uh, well, you've I've, seen it already. I've seen it already. Yeah, so yeah, um, yeah I, I I love it. I mean, I love Basket Case, Frankenhooker, uh, Bad Biology was the last film we did is sort of a phoenix from the flames uh movie but yeah brain damage was probably the the last great film i saw by him and uh yeah it, it just doesn't fail to deliver i mean I, I love the score there's like this weird sub tangerine dream electronic stuff going on it's very repetitive and mm. it kind of needlessly plays on but i like it for that reason yeah the, with the soundtrack the, the actual music the score itself I thought was good but it was one of those things rather like hey we've not mentioned this yet this show have we Ken Russell yeah. who died be, be, between when we recorded the last show and this one R.I.P. it very much reminded me of things like Gothic and Lair of the White Worm where as cheap as those were and they were doing a good job the soundtrack the fact that it sounded so much like an attempt at an attempt at an orchestral score but was obviously done by one guy on a synthesizer in his bedroom kind of Made it cheaper than it needed to seem. Really? Yeah. I oh thought no, so. I didn't. I didn't get that at all. Yeah. No. no, the the soundtrack didn't really do it for me. It was it was something that dragged it down. I thought. No, definitely. Like, don't listen to Jim. <laughs> <laughs> what does he know? <laughs> he doesn't have a blog dedicated to. Uh, you don't obscure anymore. Obscurate his yes. music. Oh no, you do. <laughs> uh, but also, I just like to say, uh, special effects very uh, low budget, but great and the done by Gabe Bartolos who has done a very bizarre film called Skin Deep I think it was directorial debut which my mate bought me a few years ago we watched together that's got to be seen it's got Warwick Davis in it as a sort of it's a bit like um, a Texas Chainsaw Massacre family in the middle of nowhere but he, he throws plates at people that's his thing he's got the special rucksack where he Lobs them out. The Greek plate massacre. Yeah, <laughs> it's very weird. But um, yeah, obviously low budget. And I've got to say, Heckland hype lighting again in uh, Brian's room. 
blues yes. and purples, lots of them. I'm not going to say bother, but <laughs> there was a lot of heckle and hype, but I was getting a lot of that from oh. there. I don't know whether that's the thing you do in low-budget uh, 80s films, you know, just throwing the blues and purples, but it was quite effective. You're going to be more familiar with Basket Case than I am, I think. Yeah. I've, this I've, struck me as probably quite... Did you see him? I saw there was <laughs> the... Yeah, it was It was not a very subtle reference. There was a point when Brian's on the tube, sorry, the, the subway. There's no um, Bill But yeah, this guy gets on. I don't know if it's the same actor, but with a it basket is, yeah. case with a padlock on it. And it's... They draw too much attention to it, I thought. I mean, it's a, it's a nice touch, but it must just seem... Uh, I think it's more the way that he's being Elmer is possessing him at that yeah. moment, and oh, I forget what his name is. God, but like the main, uh, the protagonist in Basket Case is brother is Belial. Yes, yeah. yeah. This I think there's a, there's meant to be that yeah. sort of mirror thing, isn't there? Well, that was what I was. That's why I brought that up. It sounded like it was a similar idea to Basket Case. Mm. It's this regular guy, but he's got this dark side to him, which yeah. is not physically manifested. Uh, a little too similar, or are they quite distinct movies? I think they're quite different. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm genuinely asking because it's been so long I think since I saw Basket, Basket Case. Case is more revels in the exploitation, seedy side of it. The more mm. like down and dirty, grungy New York side of it. It's more obviously like Forty Second Street. Yeah, sort of kind of. Um, I don't want to say obsessed, but it's a bit over the top. But I think uh, with brain damage. It's more its own movie. It's a bit more removed, you know. That kind of stuff is kind of on in the background, um, going on in the background. Unlike, say, Basket Case or Frankenhooker. Yeah. Actually, there's a guy from Frankenhooker in this as well. Is the the muscle guy having the oh yeah the shower? He's <laughs> in Frankenhooker. He's like the drug dealing pimp in Frankenhooker. Which is a great scene. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, because you always think that he's going to be a victim. It confounds your expectations mm. a bit. Because my favorite bit in this is a point where um, Brian tries to break free from Elmer's control. And uh, it, it's it's a quite a lengthy sequence of because Elmer yeah it's a very it's it's a good effect but it's quite basic he's kind of a he's, not, he's probably not a glove pu- puppet but you can see he'd be controlled by cables from below so all the time he's being stood up in buckets and sinks and and, and what have you but there's a, he's just <laughs> well Brian's going cold turkey or appropriate for this time of year right? yes <laughs> trying his best to whilst being taunted by this very eloquent sound <laughs> <kind of laughs> yes. I did really enjoy this however even though it was a short film it's 80 minutes there wasn't quite enough to keep it going for me it kind of lacked a bit of oomph to it it had such a great opening that there were lots of scenes that went on I thought a bit too long all the money would have gone on making Elmer as good as possible, and he is 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 fantastic, you know, for what he is. But you can't have him, th- even though he's in it a lot. You can't have him in it every second yeah. of the film. Obviously, it's a character with no arms and legs. All he can do is talk. So there's a limited amount to what you can do with him. So, yeah, there the were there were there was just a kind of a lack of energy to a lot of this. I thought. Oh right. I, I'm, no, I'm quite the opposite. I thought there was plenty of energy. I thought it was bountiful in its energy. Yeah, like. I suppose the extended gore scenes maybe mm. they could have been trimmed a bit, but I, I don't. Know, I love the potted history of Elmo by um, the. That's a prime. That's amazing. Yeah. I uh, thought that was great though. Well, that it's a good like sort this, of three minute rambling speech. Exactly, which I any other film it. would have, you know, that in a show don't tell, they'd have physically tried to represent that because he comes up with this this the. Um, one character comes up with a whole history of Elmer, this history going right back to the Crusades, and this was around the time Hellraiser was coming out, 
even though those were low budget films they made some effort to try and show the past of the box didn't they that even if it just meant getting one outfit yeah one set so it's quite telling with this when you have this guy for three minutes going this character found him going back to the crusades and then this and then this and then this and it went on and it was almost like I thought they were doing it deliberately to point out how little budget they had <laughs> this guy had to keep filling us in on this history rather than I thought that was the kind of the point of it though. what was? that, that, that they're, they're showing they're highlighting how you know the, the, there isn't much going on here we, yeah in order to uh, incorporate the next scene that's going to yeah. happen we've got to have this we've got this like, guy sort of stop the film for two minutes and stand well, by yeah, a brick wall like, talking what, what, yeah but he's moving all the time he's trying to get closer to Brian well, like he walks a bit. But, yeah but I, it, it, it kind of works you know I, I, I think sometimes you've got to give like low budget filmmaking or exploitation movies a bit of a pass for oh you do definitely in common with our other two Christmas crackers, we can't really discuss the ending. I mean, nothing spec. It, it's not like the ending's anything spectacular plot-wise, but it's the way it's executed is really fantastic. I think. I think for a movie that is, I don't think it's taking an ambiguous stance on drugs, but there's definitely something saying, you know, being addicted to something that it uh, makes you do other things. Yeah. That finishes with what is pretty much a transcendental moment. It makes it way more ambiguous than well, it needs to be. Well, yeah, I guess. Because, again, we've not mentioned Ken Russell too much, given it's just like... But, yeah, it had an air of altered states or something. To yeah, it, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. There's something a little bit like, wow. Yeah. <laughs> I d- maybe he was just looking for anything to finish. <laughs> just was, like us. Yeah. <laughs> Why don't we go out tonight and get us some girls? Yeah, that's a swell idea. Let's go up to 33rd Street and get us some hookers. Get ourselves a car and pile them in. <laughs> boy, oh boy, I could eat a million of them tonight. <laughs> so, that's the end of our Christmas special. I hope you're listening to us while you're trying to digest a very rich meal. Or, or a very poor meal. A very poor meal. <laughs> you're just taking a little time out, having had some enforced time with your family or other people you didn't really want to spend too much time with. Or maybe you've just slaughtered them all and you're waiting for the bodies to freeze up in the freezer. In true midnight video style. <laughs> Thanks very much for joining us. I hope you've had a, a good time and a good Christmas. Yeah, and hopefully a good New Year because you, you probably won't hear from us at all. Oh, you definitely won't. We're, gonna, we're all going to be in France. I'm in France till just after Christmas and then... Then Birmingham awaits. <laughs> then, then Birmingham to visit my mate. Yeah. So what me and Phil are about to do is hopefully try and record a little video message which we're going to put up on the site uh, if it doesn't work we'll just edit this bit out of the um, out of the podcast <laughs> yeah so once again have a great Christmas and we'll see you in 2012 and if you want to get in touch uh, www.midnight-video.com you can leave a message on the website or uh, midnightvideo.hotmail.co.uk or Facebook Midnight Video search and Twitter at Midnight Video. Okay, good night, Merry Christmas. Ho ho ho. That sounded like green giants. <laughs> yeah. Let's get cheeky.
trying to think of ways to wrap this up. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> <So> <laughs> um, there won't be any snow in Africa this Christmas. 